Hi, my name is Akin, and welcome to the newest episode of This is the Revolution. You know it's the newest one because you just clicked on it. Um, so yeah, welcome back to the show. I know you missed me as usual. I'm still here. I'm still here. Pandemic is horrible. It's terrible. I don't know if I acknowledge that there's a pandemic going on, but you already knew that. Um, yeah, so let's get, let's start. Let's go. Let's, let's go. Show on the road. Yeah, so this episode will be covering Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which is part of the Wall album released in 1979. And uh, more particularly, be covering the movie uh, The Wall and the music video connected to the song Another Brick in the Wall, which I hope y'all are familiar with. It is uh, Pink Floyd's most popular song. And as you know, or noticed, this is definitely different than... Most of the episodes that I've done so far, I'm trying to experiment a little and see what other kind of contents I can interact with. And I think I did a great job, <laughs> great job, if I can say so myself, on this episode. And yeah. Yeah, and... I was thinking of this episode because I definitely got a little burnt out earlier in the month and also struggling with uh, the loss of one of my closest friends, Govinda Premnath. So this is also a testament um, for, you know, this is for him. Uh, this is a band that meant a lot to both of us when we were younger and to another friend of ours that passed away. So shout out to Joseph Rodriguez, Govinda Premnath. Rest in peace. Love y'all. So, yeah. Right. Overall, Pink Floyd is one of my favorite rock bands of all time. I think they brought a lot of heart and sorrow to the world of psychedelic rock and the beginnings of progressive rock. Um, yeah, they spent a lot to me when I was growing up. So I have a deep appreciation for their ability to capture deep personal struggles of growing up, being a human, and also connecting those struggles and fears to large institutions and naming that it was actually schools, banks corporations that were responsible for a lot of our, our fears or frustrations. So this song is written by Roger Waters, who I really, really deeply appreciate. Uh, he's been a big supporter of the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. Um, uh, so folks who don't know, it's a movement uh, to end the apartheid ongoing in Israel and the uh, domination and imperialist uh, behavior of Israel over Palestine. And he's been a huge supporter of Palestinian, of the Palestinian struggle. And is also, you know, more importantly, has also moved other people into it. Um, I think a lot of celebrity activity activists, you know, not only choose like, you know, bad causes, like, you know, uh, saving like this super specific fish or whatever. Um, but also don't move other people. But I think Roger Waters does a great job at actually moving other activists to do things like boycotting the, uh, part side state of Israel. And the movie The Wall was directed by Alan Parker, Sir Alan Parker, actually, I should say. He's a British legend. Directed musical like The Wall, 
uh, Bugsy Malone, which is a gangster musical comedy featuring child actors playing adult actors. Shit you not. Shit you not. He's also done horror movies, family dramas, which are pretty much the same thing if you think about it. And also directed Mississippi Burning. And that's um, autobiographical autobiographical crime thriller following the murder of civil rights activists um, who were lynched during Freedom Summer. So the music video I'm talking about is actually part of the movie The Wall, which was released in 1982. Um, And I think the music video really is an example of what I'm talking about with Pink Floyd, where they're able to, in the song, capture the struggles of the titular character Pink um, as he struggled against uh, the British schooling system, which is based on Roger Waters' uh, struggles with the system. And, uh, you know, the, the isolation, uh, the alienation from it, and then also you know, directly confronts it. It's like, okay, I feel this way because of this. And the wall being referenced here isn't actually, you know, about Donald Trump or immigration or anything like that. It's a wall um, that Pink, the main character of the movie The Wall, um, he's, he's building a wall around himself. It's a wall to protect himself from others, essentially. It's a wall, um, and each brick um, of the wall is representative of his, his traumas and the moments he's had to close himself off. So the movie The Wall follows a rock star named Pink and traces his life story through flashbacks and distorted realities playing within his mind. The specific part we're talking about here is when Pink is back in a private school, a little baby boy protagonist is in class. He's scribbling in a notebook and there's a teacher who's babbling on about something. He comes across uh, Pink, grabs his notebook and uh, starts ridiculing Pink in front of class. Um, because he's writing poetry and the teacher reads his poetry out in front of the classroom, which is, you know, super embarrassing. And so the video cuts to a scene of the teacher at home having an argument with his wife is revealing that his own anger and frustrations that he's acting on with the students comes from somewhere else and connected to something. And then which I'm like, is that really the, the issue? Okay. It is an interesting inversion where I feel like it's often, you know, the workplace that gets brought home um, here. So it is. Yeah. But uh, it's revealed just saying that he's acting out something else and acting out his frustration on the students. And the video cuts back to the teacher spanking a student in, in class. And the song's infamous chorus suddenly kicks in with a single adult voice um, singing. And the scene switches to children marching down a conveyor belt towards some sort of machine and coming out the other side with distorted faces and identities or like they were wearing these masks um, that look like faces, but are really heavily distorted and mushed up. So we're fed some more scenes of children marching down hallways and lockstep to the rhythm of the, the teacher who's in the middle of the hallway shouting at them. And suddenly we're smacked with the addition of uh, the chorus. Um, the children have now joined into the chorus and essentially seized the chorus um, from the adult singer from before singing, we don't need no education. And the video cuts back to our original conveyor belt. And it's revealed that the conveyor belt inevitably actually leads to uh, 
the churning of children into meat, where it's actually a big a part of a bigger machine that slowly turns all these uh, children into ground beef, it looks like. And then we cut back to the classroom as if the students had suddenly realized this and they explode. They take off their mask, they rip them off, revealing their true faces underneath. Uh, they start breaking things in the classroom. They start um, using the fire axes that they have for fire emergencies, using that to break up chairs and tables. They're using hammers to smash walls and then start building a bonfire outside with all the broken objects. So the fire is raging. The children are, are going wild and suddenly the teacher is grabbed by the students and is dragged towards the inferno and is about to be tossed into the bonfire when suddenly it cuts back to the original scene and Pink is back in class, uh, you know, dozing off in a daydream, revealing this is all a dream in his head, much like a, you know, a good chunk of the movie itself, actually. Unfortunately, because, you know, it was a pretty cool scene. I, I do support teachers for the most part. Don't, don't spank kids, you know? So today we'll be discussing my understanding of student uprisings and my personal theory on student uprisings. So the theorist today is me, Akinlolu Olainka. You don't need to know the rest of the name. Not yet. So I want to talk about student uprisings and their features um, and how I see them. So by student uprising, I'm talking about major upheavals led by students in which students are working collectively and identifying themselves as students uh, to win a, a swift change in society. And specifically talking about those moments of, you know, grand upheaval, often, you know, riotous um often involving student strikes, often involving occupations. So that's what I mean by a student uprising. So um, student uprisings are important to understand because they have played a part in pretty much every major revolution of the last, you know, uh, century plus. You'll find students playing some sort of major uh, role in one way or another, sometimes getting in the way. Um, but yeah, they've, they've, they've been important and they've helped reshape many societies, including our own. And students occupy a special role in society, in my opinion. No, I think it's fact. They, they're both necessary and unnecessary at the same time, where they, you know, if every student stopped going to school today, which is funny because we're in a pandemic and this is a thing that happens once in a while, you know, the country's not going to really shut down, right? Um, in the way that if every you know, dock worker, uh, longshore person, um, every teacher, every bus driver in the country decided not to show up to work tomorrow, the country would shut down. It would effectively cease functioning in the way that we thought it would. Um, but students don't really necessarily, you know, aren't necessarily vital to the immediate function of a society, but they are vital to the long-term function of society. So I think students do have this subtle power over society that they don't always realize where it's like, yeah, they are the future in uh, one way or another um, from like K through 12 to college students, grad students, they represent, you know, the future of industry, future workers. Um, so 
any sort of disruption to that disrupts the process in which a society builds its future and its future workers. Uh, so students actually, in my opinion, have an immense uh, power in society. Um, it's just in the longer term way. And also in the meantime, when we have student uprisings, you know, it's dangerous for society uh, that want to stay the same because that reshapes the understandings of entire generations of students. So student uprisings are, um, you know, dangerous in that sense. Yeah. Again, not only stop the functioning of the education system and the indoctrination, it can also create a new temporary indoctrination into a radical movement that can cause long-term problems for a regime. And so, yeah, students are necessary but unnecessary at the same time. And another key feature of students is that they don't have much access to traditional forms of power compared to other groups in society. Uh, so I'm thinking mainly about electoral power and economic power. Uh, their electoral power is almost non-existent for students uh, in K through 12 um, and does exist for students in college. But that is also tricky uh, considering how uh, temporary that is compared to people living in a, you know, a community for like 20 years. Um, and their economic power is also limited compared to other groups like teachers, administrators, textbook companies. Um, so their ability to do things like bribery, lobbying, same thing sometimes, often, kind of framing public opinion, um, boycotting students, uh, don't have as much power to do those kind of things as other groups. They do and often do. Um, but it's not, it, it's not really the same. So you're asking yourself, what kind of power do students have? Is it superpowers that we all received, or at least the black students on December 21st? the day I'm recording this. That is true. But students also have the idea of disruptive power. And we've talked about disruption in a previous episode um, when it came to escalation, the importance of using disruption as a means of getting attention for your issue. And it's very important here because I, I believe that it is one of the most and really the really only, not, I mean, basically the only power that students have consistently is the ability to disrupt. Like no matter, you know, what kind of institution they're in, because um, there are a lot of institutions and countries that students do have some power, like Cuba. Students do have some power in Cuba, um, but it's all different everywhere. But disruption is a thing students can always do to a society. So disruptive power is a form of power. It's basically it's a threat to an institution, a government regime saying we will prevent you from functioning until we get what we want. So this looks like taking over buildings, blocking roads, even simply not, you know, just not going to class. Um, disruptive power can cost institutions money, destroy their public reputation, or force them to shut down completely. And disruption is also great at polarizing the public and is really the prime mechanism of how I think about it here, um, or like how it, um, like uh, its purpose, its function is it can polarize the public and bring attention to your issue, which can help spread the movement and eventually get you allies um, with people who have more traditional forms of power, uh, like political parties or um, labor unions, um, depending on what your, your movement is trying to do. Obviously, there are many situations in which students, you know, rejected working with labor unions or political parties for very good reasons. Um, but yeah, disruptive power is really important. It can disrupt, prevent things from functioning, shut things down, and it can also spread the movement, which is a big problem for any regime. 
And I believe that student uprisings come from this gap of power and this weird situation that students are in that they deal you know, with any issue in society, it shows up for students, whether it be war, uh, taxation, healthcare, and they're in this position in which they they do have some say in society, but not really at the same time. And I think that weird, awkward conflict leads students to suddenly seek to grasp for the power that they really do deserve at the end of the day. And while student uprisings are often spontaneous. I really, really want to emphasize the importance of student organizations and student associations and unions within the process. Uh, the most successful student uprisings, I believe, involve the support or leadership of newly created or already existing student organizations. They're actually able to have meetings to, to create strategy and make plans for rebellion and carry on the work of the movement potentially after the uprising, whether that be um, doing the work um, of uh, base building in communities and moving more people onto their side in the long run, or often uh, associations and student organizations become political parties or help create political parties themselves. Going back to the the scene that we saw. Or I guess you didn't see it. You should watch it, though. Um, another brick in the wall. The students in the video are clearly, you know, barely teenagers the most and thus are unlikely able to vote. They, um, you know, doubtful how much lobbying these kids are doing, you know, in their free time. And their boycotting power really isn't going to be that strong. Um, so they're, they're being forced to transform themselves into people they're not. Their sense of identity is being stripped away and distorted by the education they're getting. And worse, they find out the purpose is not to be of them being in school is not to be educated, but actually to be ground up into meat to be consumed by society. But more specifically, corporations and the future employers of these students. And once the reality is fully revealed, similar to uh, a trigger event um, like the raising of tuition, despite petitions from students, uh, the students remove their masks when, once the everything is clear. Um, they reject these, these identities forced upon them. And, you know, this, this is arguably a form of, um, disruptive non-cooperation itself. But then they proceed in rioting, a tactic grounded by its ability to disrupt. The video ends with the seizing of the teacher, which represents a toppling of the power structure that controlled them. So the example I want to start with today is that of the Soweto uprising, uh, which took place in uh, Soweto, a township um, in South Africa. The uprising took place in 1976 and lasted for three days, June 16th to the 18th. So the background of this, uh, black students in Soweto um, were dealing with you know, harsh conditions. This is, you know, we're, we're dealing with being colonized people in their own countries with uh, white uh, colonizers still present. And, you know, this would involve things like uh, public beatings um, in front of the entire school, uh, similar to what we saw in uh, the music video, uh, where students would be flogged, spanked, whipped in front of other students as a means of punishment and to dissuade them from organizing. Um, and what really uh, set the uprising off was the idea that um, all the curriculum for students, all the teaching would now be done 
in the language uh, of uh, Afrikaans, uh, the language of the colonizers that still ruled South Africa at the time and arguably still still kind of do in a lot of ways, at least they control the land. And um, so the strategy, you know, often used by colonizers to sever the ties of um, a new generation from their parents, from their communities, from their cultures, um, to essentially prepare people to be better workers in their society, to, to better assimilate colonized people into becoming, um, you know, pieces of machinery for uh, the, the corporate uh, state of the colonial uh, regime. So students organized the South African Students Movement, an organization of high school students uh, formed to uh, one day unite all students across the country, campaign to improve their conditions. So SASM or SASM, I feel like they probably called it SASM based on, you know, how students do stuff. Um, held a meeting at a community center and had hundreds of students show up, 55 different schools showed up. Um, and together they created the Soweto Students Representative Council, which elected members from this group to uh, create an action plan for the campaign and begin organizing and um, serve as leadership for the, for the you know, campaign to shut down the new language changes within the system. June 16th, columns of students across Soweto uh, launched marches from different starting points from different schools, locations. Um, so they're just separate marches and they're all going to converge in one central point. And, you know, I, it's a brilliant idea where you're able to get more attention for the march if you have the numbers to have all these different uh, lines going. It also forces the police to stretch themselves thin, which is the thing I've seen happen uh, quite a few times at protests in Philadelphia this past summer. So highly recommended, highly recommended if you can pull it off. The, the protests involved, I believe, a total of 20,000 students and... um some of the students, one of the columns was stopped by police on the way um, to the central point and led to um, like a tense standoff. Eventually, a police officer uh, shot a 12-year-old, um, uh, shot and killed 12-year-old Hector Peterson. Um, and the students, instead of retreating, exploded into righteous fury and engaged in street battles with the police. Um, I mean, many, many students did flee for their lives because, you know, Terrifying. Um, but, you know, the, these children were were met with bullets um, and uh, many students, many children died and were killed uh, by white police officers. Um, so, yeah. And I want to play a little clip um, from a BBC interview from 2019 uh, from a student organizer who was there. So here is Bongi Kwebela speaking. Absolutely worst moment for me personally was when, when the news came that a little boy of 13 had been killed. Somehow I think that was the barrier. It's almost like, you know, when you cross that line, there is nothing else that you can ever fear again. And for me, that was the moment when we realized that lives were going to be lost. And when we realized that it's not going to be about a protest and us submitting a paper of grievances, the response we we're going to get was going to be a response that would potentially put us in prisons and even kill some of us. It was suddenly as if the students truly understood that their purpose, much like the students in the music video, was to be ground into meat and that anything else was 
you know, was, was a, sh- a show, was a means to getting to that point. And their lives were utterly meaningless to these white police officers and the white uh, government that ruled over them. So the students took back much of Soweto and pushed back the police, began burning down buildings associated with the administration, burning down buildings associated with whiteness, like the beer halls in the neighborhoods. And um, with all this, um, the police pushed back also, you know, shooting and killing more people and uh, continuing to instigate and start violence across Soweto. Uh, which then, you know, led to more people being polarized and more and more people coming out in support of the students. So the movement continued to grow as a story of the sacrifice and disruption of the students spread. White students at a nearby university even staged protests in support of the students with one sign reading, don't start the revolution without us. I know that's not what white South Africans sound like, but yeah, whatever. So the fighting intensified over the following days. Um, the minimum estimate Absolute minimum was 176 deaths. Most estimates are around 600 to 700 people who were killed. Uh, almost every single one of those people were black. Um, I believe I, um, I only heard of one story of one white person who was killed. And within the next week alone, uh, this you know the protests continued to spread um, elsewhere. We had 1,000 workers went on strike at a nearby Chrysler factory in support of the students, and riots broke out in cities and townships across South Africa in solidarity uh, with the students of Soweto. The uprising also brought international condemnation upon South Africa, particularly when the picture of Hector Peterson, the 12-year-old, was spread across the planet. And people were like, yeah, this is is it. This is what it looks like. Um, It led to further uprisings in the country and brought a new generation into the armed struggle of the African National Congress, the party that Nelson Mandela belonged to. in 1980, another student uprising was actually sparked. Uh, this time, the students took to chanting the lyrics of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, um, which I thought was really beautiful. And the apartheid government in response banned the song. The African National Congress would eventually go on to negotiate the end of apartheid and win the first post-apartheid elections. And obviously, this isn't where the story ends, but it's where I'm going to stop it right now. There's still a lot of issues ongoing in South Africa and um, much like happens after a lot of, um, you know, revolutions or social movements, changes um, that don't fundamentally transform the underlying economic conditions. Um, South Africa is still dealing with the white elite of the country holding on to, you know, vast amounts of wealth and power. And I really want to name the importance of organization here, um, particularly um, the student or the South African students movements uh, that would then found the Soweto Students Representative Council. Like organization was really important to South African uh, organizers, building organizations, sustaining them. 
and um, trying to sometimes institutionalize them for the long run. And I think that is um, a big issue in the United States where when it comes to student organizing, we don't really have um, a national kind of like student body for students anymore. I mean, we did have the U.S. Student Association for quite some time, but I mean, I was a long, you know, I was a member for of it for a long time and a staff member also. And, you know, this organization was created in 1947, started out with, I think, about 400 student governments in the country basically working together as a united government for students in the country, representing students um, with the aim of, you know, fighting for uh, higher education access um, and uh, the rights of students in general. Um, so this is this is an organization, this kind of organization a national student association is something that exists in most countries and it's, it functions, you know, similar to, uh, to having like a national labor union is it is this big, important body that often can wield a lot of political power. And if anything, as we've seen with students, you know, can wield and call for disruptive power in a major way. So the U S student association was created here in 1947. Uh, but by the time of my generation in the, you know, 2010s, it had dwindled to, you know, like maybe a dozen campuses at the most. So there, there's a gap here in the United States. Um, there's a lack of a national student association, uh, a, a representative body that can help sustain student uprisings and support them. So student associations aren't always the ones to launch uprisings, but they are often ones to help sustain them, uh, support them. Um, sometimes financially, sometimes by giving them legitimacy. Um, in some governments, like in Cuba, for example, student associations have connections to the government itself or have representative seats within the government. And you'll find some of that within the United States too, but a lot of student associations uh, from USSA down to the statewide level associations that existed um, were basically attacked by um, state governments, federal government, and uh, broken down. Uh, so places like you know Arizona, and Wisconsin had amazing student associations uh, when I was in school and, you know, still amazing organizers, but a lot of the infrastructure was stripped down and, you know, stolen from them uh, by the state out of fear of student associations because they represent such a threat to society or at least the status quo. And to really emphasize that, yeah, I want to talk about USSA's history and um, and the history of student associations across the world, really, where in the 60s, they became this intense battleground of ideology where left-wing students would create them, right-wing students would create them, and they would try to become the dominant, truly representative uh, student association. And on top of that, right-wing governments would often create student associations out of thin air to basically fight against and uh, try to um, you know, outmaneuver left-wing student associations, the ones that often were the legitimate representatives of uh, students. And a great example of that is when the CIA um, took over the international fu international functions of the U.S. Student Association. And so this was, uh, I think, it lasted for a decade. And they basically used the international office of the U.S. Student Association to spread, you know, this like pro-American kind of ideology and trying to ensure that any other student associations being born on the planet would be more aligned to the United States as opposed to the Soviet Union and their student association. So I just want to emphasize, like, these are really important institutions that we really do not talk about much in the United States and play a large part in sustaining building uprisings and also helping to ensure that uprisings are kept going for decades, are transformed into political parties, are transformed into new campaigns, transformed into revolutions. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I love student associations and I can't wait to talk to you more about them. Love student uprisings. We're going to see a lot more. I guarantee you this spring. I bet my life on it. So I think we need to return to student associations. Um, yeah, they've been vital, important. And the U.S. Student Association is being reborn right now. Hopefully not along the lines of like basic liberal politics, which I think is a tendency that exists within the USSA, but like really holding a lot of our radical past and owning the future, you know, that, you know, the young people are radicalizing and they want free higher education. They don't want student debt and they want freedom and they want liberty, joy, happiness, all that good stuff. And I think a student association should be able to keep up with it um, to a certain extent. So yeah, be on the lookout for the return of the U.S. Student Association. Very excited about that. Much love for the other alumni. And that is it. Thank y'all for your time. Justice will be served, and we'll look back upon this as when it all became clear that we were being ground into meat.